Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin. Today, we're talking about the ineffectiveness of AML, anti-money laundering laws. So Ron Paul, lawyer and researcher, joins me to talk about how and why AML laws are ineffective and the massive cost to society, the cost to taxpayers and customers, their financial access and inclusion concerns, as well as FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, and the problems around what they are doing to the world in terms of around government regulation and so-called financial crime laws. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Swan is a really easy way to accumulate Bitcoin. You can start off with a lump sum purchase using a wire and then set up an automatic recurring buy. And as I like to call it, a Bitcoin savings plan. It's really fast to set up and cheap to automate your stacking. And with Swan, the focus is on education. So when you sign up, you're going to continually get new pieces of education delivered to you in your inbox. And Swan is Bitcoin only. There's no confusion with altcoins because Bitcoin is in a class of its own. So if you're interested to sign up, go to swanbitcoin.com slash levera and you'll get $10 of Bitcoin dropped into your account when you start your Bitcoin savings plan. Are you interested in the idea of Bitcoin DeFi? Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow stablecoins globally and anonymously using Bitcoin as collateral. So with Lend at HodlHodl, if you need some fiat, you don't have to necessarily sell. You can actually put your Bitcoin as collateral and get some short-term liquidity and borrow stablecoins. And you will still hold one of three keys in controlling that collateral in escrow throughout the whole deal. On the other hand, stablecoin holders can earn interest by lending their stablecoins out, defining the terms and the APR for their deals. HodlHodl has just completed a major security upgrade, so go and check out the platform. It's lend.hodlhodl.com. Are you interested to get involved with Bitcoin mining? CompassMining.io are making it easy for you to do this. You can go and select a Bitcoin mining machine, an ASIC, and have that shipped to a vetted facility, and then select a mining pool, and start receiving Bitcoin. Now, you don't need advanced technical knowledge to get started. You don't have to go and negotiate a fancy power deal. And many of us have bad residential power rates and we might be more interested to look for competitive power rates that are found at some of the hosting facilities that Compass Mining has found for you. So this is a great way to get started. And if you're in the US, you can partake in the Mining at Home program and have those miners shipped to your home to mine from home. So they've got all sorts of material and content. Go and sign up, it's compassmining.io. And now onto the show with Ron Paul. Ron, welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast. Thanks for having me on. So Ron, uh, I've been uh, having a look at some of your work and now this is typically a Bitcoin podcast, but I think your work is actually quite interesting for my audience and listeners because they will probably be interested and perhaps have their viewpoints um, informed by some of the research that you have been doing, which is around the research into AML and potentially the ineffectiveness of the current AML, anti-money laundering regimes around the world. And I think it would be great to maybe just get a little bit of a background from you. Where are you coming from? Uh, what's your uh, professional and academic background in this area? Uh, fair call. Uh, I uh, was once a lawyer for, uh, for for many years in London and uh, New Zealand and also in a few other countries um, for a small amount of time, um, in-house and also uh, external major law firms, etc., and I also have a degree in economics, but uh, certainly don't call myself an economist. Um, but some years ago, uh, I was quoted in the uh, US Senate uh, testimony by someone quoting me and describing uh, AML as arguably the least effective anti-crime measure ever anywhere, which is quite a um, quite a significant uh, ask, really, when you consider some of the things. You look at prohibition and you look at 
the war on drugs and uh, and they're pretty ineffective but uh, so so I ended up uh, doing a PhD with some of the um, uh, top critical thinkers in this area just to uh, get to the, really get to the bottom of it yeah and so th- there is this whole discussion and I think as you pointed out in some of your blog posts is this idea that in the corporate media often the conversation is something like oh look how bad bitcoin is and look how good AML laws are but I think you have a view that's perhaps fundamentally challenging that what's your view around that well absolutely I mean that's that's a narrative that um, potentially catches people out as well because People are rightly focused on Bitcoin or whatever crypto they happen to be in or, or, or more broadly. Um, and they're met with the narrative that, you know, Bitcoin is bad and AML is good. And so they tend to focus, and quite rightly so, this needs to happen too, on explaining to senators and various others that, you know, Bitcoin isn't bad, that it's used in legitimate ways more than illegitimate ways, etc. And they miss the, the other side of the equation sometimes, which could potentially be the Trojan horse in terms of uh, regulations in this space that um, you know some crypto people are inadvertently allowing uh, the Trojan horse into the city um, uh, grounds already. The fact that um, AML is not necessarily um, the good that it's made out to be. Certainly, the intentions are good, um, but it's it's profoundly ineffective. And uh, without addressing uh, those issues for AML and fiat itself, simply applying all of that same. Um, stuff without asking those questions into crypto um, uh, is is potentially a very significant issue that people just aren't aware of and won't be aware of it until it's far, far too late. I see. Yeah. And so just for listeners who are new, maybe they're not as familiar. Typically, when people sign up with a bank, a financial institution or a Bitcoin exchange or a Bitcoin company, they have to do what's colloquially called KYC, know your customer. And it's part of this whole AML, anti-money laundering regime, which is there are different players in the industry or in this world, as it were. So there is FATF, F-A-T-F, Financial Action Task Force, and they are pushing out a lot of what they call guidance or policy guidance or best practices, that's what they want to call it, out to local regulators out there in the world and legislators as well in those different countries. So, for example, FinCEN in the US, Austrac in Australia, FCA in the UK, and, and various others are like the regulating entities or at least the monitoring entities. And so I guess that's kind of like a high level. Would you perhaps care to elaborate a little bit on that structure and how we got here to where we are now? There's certainly a lot to unpack there, so if I neglect something, come back, come back to me on it, particularly in terms of the KYC um, type element. But in terms of the overall structure, um, FATF, as you say, say is the, um, the global um, regulatory um, standard-setting agency, a tiny outfit based in Paris. Um, there are uh, around 70 international agencies involved um, in this, including um, FATF's regional uh, groups um, and a whole lot of others like the IMF and the World Bank and, and, and the United Nations and a great many others. So 70 or so international um, agencies involved in um, uh, AML overall, with FATF essentially at the top uh, of that. Um, there are also 205 countries and jurisdictions that um, have bought into the FATF model, um, and that's more more than there are countries, in fact. So, but that happens because you know there are some the the, the former Dutch and uh, Netherlands Antilles, for example, they're, they're grouped up as as individuals. Um, so there's 205 uh, countries and jurisdictions, um, and in each of those, there's up to about a dozen or so in some countries like the UK, even more than that, 
but but very at least two or three and and often a, a dozen or more uh, government agencies that are involved uh, in this as well. So you multiply that by two hundred and five, you add seventy to it, and there's quite a lot of taxpayer money going into um, into that process, and that's without uh, the compliance costs that are imposed on um, banks and uh, millions of financial institutions um, around the world um, as part of this. So that's the overall uh, global structure um, of how that works. There was a lot more that you had in that question. I, I've missed most of it, I suspect. Yeah. Also, just wanted to you to touch on how we got where we are now, because it seems that there has been very little regard for effectiveness of policy and regulation now, to be clear, I'm a libertarian. I'm anti, you know, these uh, laws and regulations in the first place. But I think it is worthwhile considering that are these laws even effective at their own stated purpose? Are they even cost effective, even on their own terms? And I think some of your research is actually showing that potentially that's not the case. But and yet it's that this has been essentially rammed through onto most of <laughs> most of society around the world. How did we end up here? Well, there's different ways of looking at that. So, for example, you look at it uh, at recently how it's ran through and, and um, you go back in history and look at that. So if you look at the recent approach, uh, AML laws are quite unusual in the sense that they don't appear that way. Each individual country puts the AML laws in place and they match um, international standards, etc. And that's the, that's the driver. And they appear to follow the same format as any other law. So what happens with other laws, There's a, you know, in, in a particular country, you identify what's the problem, uh, how do we solve that problem, what laws are we going to put in place to solve the problem in our country. That actually doesn't happen with AML. It's, it's very, very unusual because what AML does is countries have to put in laws that match the FATF standards. And so that's what they do. And so countries don't actually match the laws about the problem that's in that particular country. So if that country has a particular issue, if laundering takes place in a particular way, if crime takes place in a particular way, in a sense it doesn't matter. It is assumed that, in effect, that the the FATF standards will cover all of that. And it's also quite remarkable because some of my research identified that in a great many countries, that's actually not the case. Um, uh, in a great many countries, um, there is actually occasionally some research, in most countries there's none, um, but there is some, some research which shows how criminals actually use um, uh, banks and various other uh, entities to launder the proceeds of crime. And FATF laws aren't going to have any impact on that, but the country just puts in place the laws that match FATF standards. And so crims just carry on the way they've um, uh, been carrying on um, and, and perfectly happy with that. So researchers see all that because you know some researchers do the empirical work and see what actually happens. And there's this massive disconnect. But of course, a lot of people believe that you know that the standard is what it's all about. And if we follow the standard, therefore, it's going to have this impact. So there's a whole series of assumptions built into it. So laws are put in place that match the standards irrespective of they're going to have the impact and it's believed to have that impact. Now that goes right back to the beginning. So the, I tend to look at the beginning, um, you know, money laundering has been in place forever and um, we've had money laundering laws since 1970 or 1986, depending where you look at it. But I look at 1990 essentially as the beginning of the modern um, uh, era. And that's when the global diffusion took place. That's when uh, FATF was set up um, uh, uh, introduce these standards and, and move them around the world. And that's where the this, this system came about. Um, and the system is one that is 
inherently based on an assumption. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because in science we, we base things on assumptions all the time, and it's a testable hypothesis. So scientists will test that hypothesis. Does it work? So the assumption in this case is, is uh, if banks and other firms um, uh, comply with uh, local uh, laws based on international standards that should have an impact on uh, uh, money laundering, crime, and terrorism, the, the, the main things. Now, that's a, that's a, a testable hypothesis. It's a perfectly valid hypothesis. The only trouble is that it has never been tested, and it's not been proven to be the case. Now, in the in the early days, it didn't really matter um, because it was a good idea. It was in fact based on good science in terms of follow the money um, uh, uh, science um, and and policing science, and that has worked particularly well. The Italians proved that very very well, um, uh, well before some of this stuff came about, and so, and also in, in the U.S. jurisdiction um, in in a number of different ways. So it was based. It was solidly based. Um, but in 1991, very few countries had signed up to the FADF standards, and the reason for that was because FADF couldn't prove that following these standards would have a significant impact on crime. So why would the countries sign up? Very few signed up. And then, uh, curiously enough, a lot of banks um, started using the FADF standards as a, as a lazy proxy for risk in those countries. And what that meant was that all of a sudden, um, uh, essentially by stealth, or, or actually it was, it was almost uh, inadvertent, but it became um, express after that, that countries had to get the FADF tick if they wanted access to the financial system. So all of a sudden, countries had to sign up to the to the FADF model. Whether it worked or not didn't matter anymore. Um, uh, they had to sign up because otherwise they don't get access to the financial system, or if they don't um, uh, slavishly apply the FADF standards, whether or not they apply, they have an impact on crime, if they don't slavishly apply them, then some significant costs are imposed uh, on their on their jurisdiction. They have to go through a whole lot of um, uh, reviews and, and get up to standard, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so that's where it all really went wrong. Um, and there's and in fact today. Uh, if you were to ask uh, anyone in the uh, AML community, and of course they'll splutter and um, and object violently, but if you ask them, well, show where it has been proven, uh, demonstrably, materially, you know, what, where's the significant impact on crime, terrorism, uh, and indeed money laundering, and it's not even measured. Little and a trio of top professors a couple of years ago pointed out the fact that um, they're not even collecting the data. To be able to measure it, so it's not it's not evaluated, it's not measured at all. All that is measured, um, and there's huge amounts of measurement that does take place, by the way. But what is measured is the activity. You know, we, we're ticking all these boxes, we're doing all these things, we're 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 prosecuting people for money laundering, etc. But when you really drill down, you test, pull away all of those assumptions. You know, what impact does it have on crime? What impact does it have on um, terrorism? What impact does it have on on even money laundering? Um, and the answer is very, very little. Uh, and the UN um, has, has bookended the uh, decade with a couple of brutal reports. Um, one demonstrated a decade ago that that the, um, a, the the success rate they termed of AML controls in terms of the um, proportion of criminal funds um, interdicted as a result of it is almost zero. 
Um, they said 0.2%, so 90, crumbs get to keep 99.8%. Uh, but in fact, when you look at their data and you look at some extra work done by the e, uh, Europol afterwards, it's probably actually 0.1% even on their own data. But nonetheless, it's, it's de minimis. Um, and I've updated that since in, in peer-reviewed academic journals, and the latest um, uh, put, puts it at 0.05%, so crims get to keep 99.95%. Um, but there's lots of other work out there too. There's some empirical work coming out with another trio of professors um, shortly. They did a book in 2014. There's another one coming out later this year, which demonstrates just how simple it is for criminals to, um, to launder proceeds of crime um, uh, to uh, hide uh, money in terms of tax um, uh, around the world, etc. Just standard tax evasion, not just crime, but also terrorists, etc. It's still very, very simple. Um, and so, in Bitcoin, you know, we're getting all of these uh, regulations that are going to be imposed. And I think next week, FATF is is launching uh, another um, you know, guidance on how this should work in in Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrencies. And um, you know. Good luck, guys. You're, you're going to be wearing all these, all these, um, all these wonderful regulations. Yeah. So I think what I'm hearing is essentially a story of ineffectiveness. That there has been incredible compliance burden, cost, lack of access driven into the financial system, and just general, you know, administrative bloat driven by many of these AML and so-called financial crime laws that are essentially making it very difficult for people to participate in the financial system. And part of that is, in, in essence, that's part of why Bitcoin exists, to create this parallel alternative. But at the same time, even on their own terms, if they're, if they're only finding 0.1% or 0.05% of criminal finances, then it's obviously not a very effective policy. It's not cost effective. And I think that's an important point to consider, that um, even on their own terms, that they're just effectively they're spinning their wheels in the mud and everyone's just sort of doing all this checking and checking of things but we're not really getting much of a result out of it and that's very um unfortunate yeah and, and i introduced uh, the cost effectiveness into it in one of my papers um last year um which was picked up by the economist and forbes and a few other places but uh the and i'm not particularly concerned about the cost effectiveness it's, it's incredibly ineffective in terms of cost if you look at the costs Roughly like for like, um, it costs many hundreds of times more um, on banks, citizens, uh, and of course citizens pay every cent of it. So when bank, banks are fined, you know, ten billion pounds uh, dollars a year or thereabouts, and the compliance costs are three or four hundred um, billion per year, depending how you do the um, analysis. Uh, it's easy to say, oh, the banks deserve it, and and uh, you know they can afford it, etc. Well, actually, we pay every cent of that as citizens, uh, and as taxpayers, we pay every cent of the cost of all of the these government agencies as well. Um, also, personally, I'm not particularly fussed by the um, regulation or not regulation either. I know a lot of people in, in the Bitcoin community uh, favour Bitcoin because it's not regulated, etc. I, I personally don't mind. If it's regulated, that's fine. Um, and a lot of people think, well, we should be regulated um, and therefore it'll be wider adoption, etc. I don't even buy into that particular argument because let's assume that, yes, it's regulated, that's fine, but the regulation should be effective. And that's that's my point. My focus is effectiveness. Whether there is regulation or not, others can argue that. Um, I don't have any particular concern. I tend to favour regulation personally, but but it, it, either way, it doesn't really matter. Is it effective? Does it work? Does it have an impact on uh, crime as intended? Does it even have an impact on on laundering? Um, and and of course, a lot of people say that it does. And so we in the industry. So there are a lot of people in the industry. I, I, you know, I'm a bit different in the industry. I, 
dug down to a very, very, very deep level to look at the underpinning of the entire system using a PhD um, at the highest level of critical thinking uh, and pulling away every single assumption. Um, that's unusual in this entry because the main indicator of expertise is, a, is something that somebody described to me. He just passed his exam recently and he, he was somewhat flummoxed. He said, it's a three and a half hour multi-choice exam and now I'm an expert somehow, um, which I thought was um, an interesting observation on his part. But there were some really, really smart people in the space. But there was this belief that, oh, we catch some criminals, therefore it works. And that, that misses the counterfactual. Um, and it also misses the other thing. So yes, we catch, it does help catch criminals. So in that sense, it does work. The KYC helps catch some individuals, some criminals. But it misses the fact that if we had a system that was effective, we could catch a heck of a lot more criminals. Um, it also misses the fact that because we believe this is effective, we're not actually testing the system properly to actually catch all those other criminals. So we are constantly uh, sweating the 0.05% impact or the 0.1% impact or even call it 0.5% impact if you really want to on crime while the 99.95% is is uh, happily carrying on and so while we convince ourselves of this and it's it's natural human nature as well because we don't want to think that we're doing all of this work and it's not really having the impact and so we see the criminal that gets caught and we think yes there's the impact and we're not thinking about the counterfactual um and in fact, a KYC is a fascinating thing in itself. Uh, there is a perception that uh, if we know the identification of someone, then that's going to help um, fix the problem. Um, and so, if we can identify someone, if we can, if we know, you know, we know our customer, we know who they are, etc. And that's based on an assumption as well that crims want to hide and that ordinary people are perfectly happy to have their information um, given to uh, all and sundry. Well, neither of those assumptions are necessarily true. Um, and in fact, my um, empirical research has found, and a lot of other researchers have found something similar. Very often, crims are delighted to be asked for KYC because um, they were previously hiding in the shadows. Um, they were earning their money from you know, methamphetamine or whatever they're earning their money from. And they're constantly trying to hide their money and constantly trying to get large amounts of cash into the system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, but then when they have to prove, they have to show up um, ID and they, they in purchasing a house, for example, then they buy another house and another house, and another house. Um, very quickly, they are known to the world as a property developer. Um, and that's apparently you know better than being known as a methamphetamine dealer. Um, and so <laughs> KYC actually helps laundering take place um, sometimes. In fact, I've got one example which I'm waiting for it to to blow up, and then you know maybe John Oliver will run with it. Um, I'll write a script for him um, where a regulator in a, in a country um, introduced new ID um, uh, laws uh, in that in that country for a particular. Um, uh, a particular area in that in the economy in that country, that it was not actually possible to launder proceeds of crime in that particular um, area uh, until the the um, uh, the regulator introduced the KYC requirement. All of a sudden, it was then possible to launder proceeds of crime, uh, which was you know fascinating really when you think about it. Um, so so KYC. There's just a perception that oh this fixes everything. We just need to get um, uh, you know beneficial ownership. We just need to get this. Well, yeah, that's you've got to drill down past those those perceptions and find you know does it actually work? And when you when you drill down, drill down, drill down, and ask those hard questions, 
it really, really does not work. And we should, we should, you know, rather than just imposing it on every new area, and now, um, you know, Bitcoin and, and the wider crypto community is wearing it. But that's happened everywhere else. It's just gone, started off, you know, we, if we just extend it to another country, we'll fix everything. If we extend it to every country, and every country is extended to. If we just extend it to, to gatekeepers, you know, professional facilitators like lawyers and accountants, that'll fix everything. Well, that hasn't done it either. If we just, um, uh, you know, extend it to more, if we do ratings and blacklists, that'll, that'll fix it. Well, that hasn't fixed it. Um, and if we give regulators more and more money, well, that's not fixing it. FinCEN got a whole lot more money to, to, um, process, um, suspicious activity reports, um, that more, more efficiently. Well, actually, in 1994, um, scientists pointed out the SARS, um, issue was a major problem that needed to be addressed, not just giving more money to it. So, you know, 1994 and we're now 2021 and still haven't addressed those fundamental issues. So, um, yeah. that's, that's, that's the situation, um, uh, we're currently at. But of course, there's a huge belief that it works, which prevents anyone testing whether it really works. And so when someone like me points this out, and scientists have been doing this, as I said, for, I'm not the only one since nine, for 27 years, then it's, it's often seen as a personal affront. Oh, you must be wrong. Rather than, okay, let's drill down to that. Let's, let's ask the questions. Back to the show in a moment. CypherSafe.io are making metal backup seed products. So when you set up your Bitcoin wallets, like your hardware wallets, you'll normally get given 12 or 24 words, but you need to make sure you've got that on metal. So that way, if your house goes up on fire, you are covered and you can still recover. So with CypherSafe, they've got the CypherWheel and the CypherGrid. These are different metal seed products that you can use to back up your seed words. So these products are designed to be fireproof, rustproof, and waterproof. With the Cypher Grid, you get an automatic center punch provided, which is what you use to stamp in the letters for your words. You get a tamper evidence seal provided, and you can lock it with a padlock. So this is a great way to make sure your family and your loved ones can access your coins if something were to happen to you. You can set this back up, and you can also use it to help protect against natural disasters. So go to cyphersafe.io and use the code LAVERA to get yours. Are you looking for a Bitcoin hardware wallet? My favorite and one of the most recommended hardware wallets by Bitcoiners is the cold card. You can get it at coincard.com. It's got all sorts of features. You can use this as part of a single signature setup or as part of a multi-signature setup. You can use an SD card to set it up and initialize the device and then move that information back and forth between the cold card and your computer with wallets like Sparrow, Spectre, Electrum, Blue Wallet and others. It also has an address explorer, so you can check your receive address and make sure that you truly are the owner of the private keys for that address. And you can use it with a passphrase. It's, it's just very versatile as a device. So go to coincard.com and when you're ordering your cold card, use the code LAVERA to get a discount. So have you thought about removing single points of failure in your Bitcoin security setup? Unchained Capital are helping create a multi-signature setup so that you can hold two keys in different locations and Unchained will hold the third key. If you're not sure how to do this, Unchained have a concierge onboarding program, which is proving to be very popular. And so if you want to get set up and get get a hand with that, go to unchained.com and they can teach you how to do it over a video call. They'll ship you the hardware wallets and deposit some Bitcoin in your vault once you've created it. So you can go from never having held your private keys to actually holding multi-signature security with Unchained. So this is a great way to improve your security and give yourself a little bit more peace of mind in the case of an accident occurring or things like that, you can feel a little bit more confident now because you've actually got a multi-signature setup. So if you're interested, go to unchained.com, select the concierge onboarding program and use the code LAVERA for a discount. Back to the show. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot in there. So let's take some of those ideas and expand on some of them. So one crucial point you touched on was SARS. So that's these activity reports, basically. So things like if it's over $10,000, that it has to be reported to the regulator. And in other cases, even if it's suspicious activity, not just over $10,000, but if you did lots of $9,000 transactions, as an example, then that bank might be now required to run some analytics in the background and then report that up to the local regulator, FinCEN or Austrac or whoever. And so could you just touch on that a little bit, what we've seen uh, over that 27 years, as you've been um, saying, that there's so many SARs and activity reports going to the regulators, but what's happening? Is it just not being effective there? No, it's, it's, it's incredibly ineffective. Well, the reason, the reason well, there's two elements. One, there's the suspicious activity reports, which are a misnomer anyway. Um, and the second is the, the other reports, like the, uh, anything above $10,000 or anything of a certain type of transaction or whatever. So there's those two, two things. So one, banks, et cetera, have to provide everything that meets this particular threshold, whatever it is, above 10000 or international um, uh, orders above a certain amount, whatever. And then um, banks also have to have a massive um, compliance function, which itself is, a, is hugely costly and is a barrier to entry to um, to other uh, new firms and a barrier to entry to competition. But that's a, a separate issue again. And so they have to go, sift through it. Now, this is also fascinating because uh, banks find that you know ninety eight percent false positive rate um, very com- is very common. So, you know, what other um, sort of software would you, would we allow a ninety eight percent false positive rate? So, it's f- sending up all these flags of legitimate transactions, legitimate people that just don't quite match the things. And so, the the software does all the easy work and then puts all the hard work onto onto the individuals and to the into the compliance people. They're hard working people in those compliance departments. They're very very dedicated. They do an amazing job. But the system is completely skewed against them. So they've got this massive, massive amount of data they've got to try and sift through. But the real problem with the SARS system, it's it's not actually set up to find crime at all. It is set up to build haystacks. And the way it builds haystacks is fundamentally flawed as well. So what it does, it puts together vast haystacks of of data. And and there are some needles, criminal needles, in that data, right? That's true. But it's really, really, really hard to find those uh, needles. And the way it's set up is really, really hard to find those needles. And the solution, and, and banks are penalised not for not finding crime or finding crime or whatever. Um, no, they're penalised because the haystack doesn't quite match the height, weight, you know, ambient temperature distribution required by the regulator. Um, so the regulator <laughs> looks at it, tick, 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 yes, it's that height, yes, it's that. Okay, great, that passes. Well, does it have any impact on crime? Oh, nobody asked that question. Does it meet those requirements? And so, and yes, there, there, there are criminal indicators in those, but those are crimes that are hit, hiding in plain sight. Um, uh, so, so somebody um, in one of the, a major US banks said to me, as long as crims are doing what they've always been doing, our system is set up to find anomalies. So if they find, if they're doing what they've always done, we'll never see them <laughs> because <laughs> it's not different to what they've always done. Um, and, and that's another issue. Uh, compliance systems are set up to comply. And uh, FATF sets out a whole bunch of um, standards. Look, um, we've found that criminals do this, this, and this. Therefore, you need to set up a system that does this, this, and this, and looks for these particular things. So the compliance um, software team set up systems that look for those particular things, and that's fine. Uh, and there's a whole lot of what they call rules or scenarios that they look for. And like this colleague in the US bank, anything that's a bit different from that gets flagged, right? But there's 
99% of the dark space that they're not looking at because that's not where it's at. Um, it's also they're following the FADF standards and not following empirical evidence. So I've got empirical evidence in, 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 uh, in several countries that shows what criminals actually do. It doesn't match the FADF standards, so <laughs> that's fine. Criminals love it. They can keep doing that. And the other thing, it's, and when, when, um, the other problem with the, the haystack manufacturing business, otherwise known as AML compliance, is that there are a whole lot of needles still on the bank. And so the bank complies, but criminals are still working um, uh, through that bank very, very well, even though they're fully compliant with these incredibly complex rules. So you can just imagine the bank is handing over a whole bunch of haystacks. So there's acres and acres and acres of, of haystacks in FIU, the outfit that needs to try and look um, through that to try and find uh, crime. There's still a whole lot of um, uh, uh, crime going on in the banks, and the banks are patting themselves on the back because we comply, there's no risk. There's a heck of a lot of risk, they just don't see it because the system isn't set up to see it. Meanwhile, the crims, you know, the criminal needles in those haystacks are mostly not being found, um, but they're there, hidden in plain sight. And the solution, which is what happened with FinCEN just uh, earlier this year, the solution is to give more money to create bigger haystacks. Um, and you know, it's a, the, the system. Uh, two scientists pointed out in 1994 that the SARS, the SARS idea, um, yeah, it's, it sounds good in practice. It sounds good. It's, it's a nice, uh, nice theory, but it actually doesn't work. We need to fix it. And you know that was 27 years ago. Um, and you know every year there's another. Um, Another issue where it's not being, um, you know, in Germany a couple of years ago and the US, um, uh, just this year. So, you know, throw more money at it, make bigger haystacks and, uh, and, and not find the, um, criminal activity faster and more efficiently. Yeah. And it can have an impact for customers and the service quality at that bank as well. As an example, uh, because that bank or a Bitcoin exchange or company, has to go through and do all this reporting, then there might be some compliance analyst sitting in a team who has to look at that SAR or SMR, suspicious matter report, and then either shut down that customer's account or stop that account. And then it just causes all this friction and blockage when, in, as you're saying, it's often a haystack. They're just creating a bigger and bigger haystack that then all that data then gets, my, well, they have to then decide that compliance analyst in the bank or the Bitcoin exchange or wherever has to then decide, okay, we're reporting this up to our regulator. And then the regulator is just dealing with a, with a huge haystack, but they're just, they're not necessarily finding the actual criminals. And what I've seen as well, uh, and I'm sure you've probably got an interesting comment on this as well, is that oftentimes when we see in the news, the unsophisticated person who's just looking at it in the news, they don't really understand the AML laws and things. They say, oh, this bank got done for not doing AML. And really what was happening is maybe they weren't catching all the reporting that they were meant to be catching. And so they weren't building the haystack to the right level in, in this analogy. And so I wonder in your view, is that an example of just the laws and the regulations have basically been crafted in such a way that just it's very difficult to comply with. And so banks and other financial institutions just get in trouble from that point of view, even if there's not necessarily been money laundering or terrorism financing going through those accounts? Excellent question. In fact, I, I would venture to say that it is impossible to um, comply with AMR laws. Absolutely impossible. I could go into any bank, any large bank at least, um, go into any large bank with a, with a decent analyst, I will find uh, significant amounts of criminal activity, I will find breaches of the AML laws. No question, right? Um, so the question, the, the issue there is that banks think that they're compliant and they're not. 
um, because they cannot be. The system is set up in that way. But it's actually worse than that because the system is no longer, and it's increasingly no longer, focused against crime. It's focused against banks. And it, because banks are a, an easier target for lazy regulators. Now, regulators don't think that. Regulators genuinely believe, or most of them, some have shared with me that they, they know the reality, but they can't say it publicly. But, but a great many of them genuinely believe that they're, they're crime-fighting uh, demons. Um, but what they're doing in a great many of these cases, not all of them, so you go back to the original HSBC case, and that was serious um, facilitation of criminal activity known by the bank, um, and you know they should be pinged for that. But if you look at a lot of these cases, you drill down to, into it and get past the salacious, you know, shouty media type stuff, um, you look at it and it's for breach of... Um, uh, they're not ticking the right boxes. They missed a few reports they should have sent. Their software wasn't quite set up to send those reports over. Um, did those reports have any indication of criminal activity? Uh, was there any laundering taking place? Was there any risk of laundering taking place? You ask those questions, and very often, uh, I've, I've seen some here in New Zealand recently, actually, and they've really got to the high watermark in this country, two regulators in particular. have just gone, it's, it's really quite bizarre. They're, they're now penalising banks for... Um, for, for situations where there is zero risk or almost zero risk of any laundering, any crime, um, they just didn't tick the boxes quite right. Um, and so that's actually going to have a particular, that's going to have a chilling effect. Um, and this is, so, so, and of course it's impossible to comply anyway. So the only determinant now is not whether a, a uh, whether a bank or an exchange is going to be um, prosecuted uh, is not determined by their activities, whether they're facilitating crime or whether they're a bit dodgy or whether they, just don't, they don't care. or uh, That's not the issue. It's whether the regulator gets around to looking at them and has the resources to do so. Because the regulator can go to any exchange, any bank, and, and will find breaches because the laws are impossible to comply with and they're not focused on crime. They're focused on you know, creating uh, enormous haystacks. I see. And so similarly to that point is that you could be an enterprising politician who realizes this and then use that to sort of drum up anger against banks because oh, yeah. that's like a popular way that you can be a very populist politician. Drum up anger against the banks. Say, you aren't doing enough against AML. We need these new laws and, and uh, et cetera. And so it just kind of perpetuates the same problem and we just build bigger haystacks rather than finding genuine criminals and stopping genuine crime, which, uh, you know, I think... Absolutely. I had a... I mean, I won't say which country. Uh, I had a conversation with a, a senior legislator in a, a G7 country, um, and, and that particular legislator was previously a police commissioner. And I said to that person, I said, well, if you want um, uh, AML laws to be effective in your country, um, it depends really what whether you've got your... Um, police commissioner hat on, um, someone who actually understands crime and, and wants to actually have an impact on um, reducing the harms from crime, whether you're a politician. Um, uh, and, you know, he, he is a politician uh, and, and was a police commissioner. And so it's a bit brutal, but I said, if you put in place these laws, um, as everyone is advising you, um, you will get, um, uh, the media will be all over you saying, this is amazing, we're, we're fixing, plugging gaps, and we're having a huge uh, impact on crime. Um, and so you'll be lauded for it. It'll be fantastic politically. Um, 
and uh, in 10 years' time, you, you know, you've retired, um, etc., and it'll have showed to have zero impact on crime, or almost zero impact on crime, um, and would have cost hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, so you know, it really depends if you're thinking like a politician that just wants to win the particular votes because um, there is a perception that it has an impact on crime, and so you're just working to that perception, or whether you actually want to have an impact on crime. And that's the call, really. And that's, you know, you've, you've nailed it. Yeah. And so one other point I wanted to draw on from what you were saying earlier around criminals who actually want some of these laws, because it maybe helps legitimize their money or actions in the eyes of the law, they can now front as a legitimate business. A similar trend, and obviously, this is a Bitcoin show. One uh, news item I've seen recently is this notion of people basically buying an already KYC'd account at one of the big Bitcoin exchanges. And then simply people are basically using somebody else's KYC to basically sell their Bitcoins or buy Bitcoins or things like that. And so that's one example where the system might be a bit counterproductive in that way. So I'm wondering whether you've noticed that trend or do you have any comment on that? Uh, I've not seen it in Bitcoin, but it's exactly the same as happened um, in fiat. So I'm not not at all surprised. In fact, we'll see a lot of the same things happen in Bitcoin that we've seen in fiat as well in terms of... It's often explained by people in the AML industry as um, crims being so much smarter and getting ahead and finding gaps, etc. It's not really finding gaps. I mean, the whole system is... Is it's 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 basically um, like uh, creating a stack of colanders to catch water uh, in terms of if you're trying to stop crime. It's like it's and so and, and it's not working. So you put another colander on top of it to try and catch that water, and another colander on top of it. It's not that crimes are so much smarter and 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 constantly getting ahead, etc. It is the system is not built to stop crime. Period. It was never built to do so, and that's not necessarily. Uh, deliberately not built to do so, although some researchers have found evidence that US and UK officials actually conspired to do just that. Um, but th- there was only a juicy six months of correspondence they were able to um, get declassified. So we, w- we want to see more of that in future. But I don't rely on that at all. Uh, I look at how is it designed? What does the design enable it to do? Does the design enable it to um, stop, um, have a material demonstrable impact on serious profit-motivated crime, uh, terrorism, uh, and even money laundering? Um, and the answer is no. So um, it's, it's, it is not designed to stop crime. It, the design does not do so, and it does that extremely I well. See. Yeah. And uh, one other Bitcoin point that mm-hmm. we make in the Bitcoin communities is the idea of creating honeypots. Yep. And this applies even in the fiat world as well. But essentially, when banks and Bitcoin exchanges and other companies are forced by the law, by the government to collect KYC and other information, this now creates a honeypot that a hacker or some other malicious party could try to get that information. And yep. especially in the case of Bitcoin, where there's no take backs, there's no bailouts. And if we're truly bullish on Bitcoin, as many as I and many of my listeners are, we think this thing is going to literally millions of dollars per coin. If they know that, let's say, Stefan Levera KYC'd at Exchange A and he purchased, you know, this many sats or this many Bitcoin, and then that database later gets hacked and they have my name, my address, how many coins I have, that, that represents a very serious honeypot risk as well. So I'm wondering whether any, you've looked at any of that or whether that has come into your analysis at all. Yeah, and actually, I've seen it. Um, I've not done research on it at a at a deep deep level, but I've certainly seen it um, uh, seen it happening. In fact, one example 
Um, you look at what happened in, in Afghanistan recently. So people provided their information to the legitimate government at the time. Um, then Taliban came back in and is now the legitimate government. And it has now access to all financial records, including the records of people who um, you know, did all the KYC, etc., people who helped the previous government, who helped the US government, etc. So it happens there. Um, you know, whether you're in the US and there's a Democrat or a Republican, and the next one is in control and puts in place something. And, and you know, would you want that information across? I, I, I We're seeing that now, of course, with, um, with vaccine passports and uh, all of that information, etc., um, and and you know, central bank cryptos as well, which is a significant issue. And a lot of these issues are not being well addressed. There is an assumption, an underlying assumption that KYC is good, that we need identification, we need all sorts of identification, that's a good thing. Um, and certainly there are privacy um, people who are putting um, up a good uh, argument um, in, in, in a number of uh, areas. But what's often missing from that is... You know, is it's a, it's a it's a belief that KYC is good. Let's test that assumption. Um, do we need all this KYC, or could we do some of it that actually has an impact, or could we do something else that has a greater impact? So uh, we, we, there seems to be an assumption that we need to do KYC rather than. Uh, what's the purpose of KYC? What are we trying to achieve by KYC? And if we're asking that deeper question, then what sort of KYC um, should we get to, to achieve that as the bare minimum that enables that objective? And that's not happening. It's, it's sort of the um, KYC is good, crypto is bad. It's that sort of um, very, very simple uh, narrative that's coming about. And I'm seeing that um, in the AML community too. There are people um, who are not saying it publicly, but serious AML elites um, are, are saying um, in the background that, in fact, um, AML um, software should have access to all of a country's um, financial data, period. If you're not a criminal, you've got nothing to hide. I mean, that's actually, that's a conversation that's that's happening more and more. I've seen it um, on a number of occasions, again, in small group discussions by AML elites. And, you know, I even joked um, just with with one a few months ago, one group um, saying, you mean a bit like that NSA system that uh, Snowden pointed out, thinking that somebody might think, oh, are we really going that far? And no one in that group blinked an eye. They, it was it was a little chilling, I thought. Um, now, I'm not yeah. saying whether we need this KYC or that KYC, etc. Et My issue is always... Does it work? Is it effective? What are we trying to achieve? What's that underlying goal? If that underlying goal is is um, uh, preventing criminals, um, you know, preventing criminal use, uh, stopping crime, having a demonstrable impact on crime, okay, rather than assume that's going to have that impact, let's test what's going to have that impact and put in place the minimum amount that will achieve that goal. Um, and that's not that is not what is happening. It has yeah. not happened in the AML yeah. community. And as uh, KYC is rolled out into um, Bitcoin and other areas. It's not. I, I'm seeing it not happening even more so, and so it's it's potentially worse than people think it's going to be. Yeah. So as you say, the main concern from your point of view is the ineffectiveness of AML, and certainly I agree with you. It's it's like we can disagree with government regulation on companies, but even if on even if you granted that or set that to the side, we're saying even on their own terms, have they been effective? And the answer is simply no, they have not. And so. Uh, the other point that I wanted to touch on, what you were saying there, uh, is that there's a massive potential for abuse. So as you pointed out with the NSA, there were examples where US government spy agency staff would spy on their ex-girlfriends, wives, and people because they would use that tool that it was there. 
And yes, some of them got in trouble for it, and there were news articles, you can search that, um, listeners, but the same thing would be possible in a KYC database, such as what you were saying, that if all the KYC software was allowed to tap into everyone's financial information, it's a massive honeypot. Think how many people would love to get access to that. Marketing companies would love to be able to surveil you in terms of what and how you spend your money. Governments would love to surveil you. Criminals would love to surveil you so they know who's, re- who's wealthy and who's keeping money at their home. There's all these aspects that are just not really just about that system. And unfortunately, it seems that there's not enough noise about the injustice of this and the risk that, that, that there are very serious risks being created um, for innocent people who may not have done anything wrong, no crimes committed, and yet their data is potentially being leaked out just in the same way that, for example, there was a big Equifax hack years and years ago. So, or not that long ago, maybe five to ten years ago. And so these are all examples where that's a pretty big risk. All right, so we've got that there. We can probably add something there, Stefan, too. Um, I, I said that the UN bookended the decade with two reports. The one I mentioned, which is um, uh, illustrating how incredibly ineffective it is. Earlier this year, the UN came out with a report that demonstrating the massive harm caused to millions of people, communities, and even countries by AML laws. Um, and this is the and unfortunately, their systems, their proposed solutions, I don't think are particularly effective. Um, but they're absolutely right um, that uh, the harms are immense. And so. You know, if, for example, we had this here years ago um, where there's a, an expat community trying to send money home to Somalia and Somalia banking system wasn't, um, wasn't working. And so they had to send it via another country. Right? And these are legitimate people. But, but because it set up a flag, it could be laundering. The bank knew it wasn't laundering, but it was too much of a risk from the regulator. So they just cut all those accounts away. Ordinary people trying to uh, send you know, a few dollars home to, to their, their, their own people. And it was known that they're legitimate people. And you look at that on a global scale. Um, vast, um, uh, you know, millions and millions of people are being hurt by this. And even countries, because countries are being slammed with uh, ratings, uh, poor ratings. You're a, you're a bad money laundering country because of this, this and this. Well, actually, um, there's, there's great irony in this. So you look at, say, the UK and the US who get the, the highest ratings for, um, you know, anti-money laundering effectiveness according to the, the current protocols. And they are uh, arguably the two top money laundering countries in the world. And so, it, it, you know, this, the rating system does not do what it says it's on the box. And so that harms a lot of countries. Um, who are penalised with poor ratings, who may actually have very, very little risk or may not have that particular level of risk. Or, and this is where other researchers look into it, and I don't um, have too much on this, um, but it's it's been said by some researchers that there are certain countries that are using the apparent objectivity of uh, FATF um, protocols as, in fact, a, as a another layer of uh, foreign policy control because they have pretty significant um influence in the background in, in this area. Now, again, I'm not concerned with that. Personally, with my research, I look at, is it effective? And it's really, really not effective. Um, but you know, those are issues um, that are quite significant issues. And the harm on communities, on, on millions of individuals, um, it's, been, you know, it's been slammed by the United Nations, but it just rolls on. The narrative is the narrative. Yeah. And uh, as you were saying, there's been that concern about countries because of FATF and the pressure applied amongst the countries. They'll say, you're not doing, quote unquote, enough. You're not making a big enough haystack. So you need to go and report harder or KYC them harder or ask more stuff. And 
it also perhaps leads to debanking of certain industries. So we're seeing certain banks come out and say, oh, we're just going to put out a blanket policy. If you are involved in, say, the gun industry or drug industry or one of these industries, we're just not going to bank you at all, just flat out. And so perhaps that's also part of it. You know, Cuba had, had that. A whole lot of people, a whole lot of banks um, disestablished their correspondent banking relations with Cuba, with a bunch of South Pacific countries um, in Africa and the Middle East. These are legitimate people doing legitimate transactions, legitimate businesses, you know, 99%, but they happen to get a, a, a bad tick from FADF. And in fact, my research has indicated that it's actually very, very easy um, uh, if you look at the way the system works to get any tick you actually want. And a couple of countries, some countries have figured that out, but many others are just going through, you know, following the narrative, getting the experts to tell them what to do, etc. And they're getting really um, uh, punished by the, the FADF ratings. Um, and, but a few have figured out that it's eminently gameable, um, and, and it is. It's, it's, you know, I could get just about any, any FADF rating for just about any country in the world um, because of the way it works. Um, but you know, countries don't realise that they do it. They do it legitimately. They, they genuinely think it has an impact. All of their, all their advisors tell them it has an impact, and they go through the motions, and they get absolutely brutalised. Um, and then, then they realise, and then, then it takes another six or seven years to try and claw that back. And meanwhile, their legitimate businesses, their um, you know, many of their citizens are hurting big time. Yeah, so I want to touch on what can be done. I guess one thing that often happens in these things is they talk about, oh, we're going to reform the system, but then really they just make it worse. And they just, you know, what can be done is, what can be done in terms of people who believe this is an issue? Can they find politicians who are willing to champion the cause, perhaps some of the Bitcoin-friendly politicians who might want to champion the cause, or uh, is it possible to defund or restrict the funding for entities like FATF or some of these overly large and overburdensome regulators and laws? What can be done here? Well, it's, it's interesting there because my research originally focused on in, in, in terms of that approach, so which is a top-down approach. How do we change the system to enable it to have a massive demonstrable impact on serious problem-motivated crime? And by the way, that is a huge reduction in compliance cost, a huge reduction in a regulatory risk um, at the same time. It doesn't need to be, as it is now, um, increasing each of those. It can be less. The trouble is there's a whole lot of barriers to that. And so, for example, one of the barriers with politicians, we've touched on a little bit of that, is that politicians are in a really difficult place. They are, well, one, they're busy, so they've got a whole lot of things they're doing, right? So they take advice on this sort of thing, and they're given advice that uh, you need to f fill the gaps and, and do, fill, do the FATF rules, that will work, right? So they take that advice, and, and often they, they take that genuinely, they believe it will work, and they implement those laws. And those laws have no um, such impact at all, but they, the, the politicians don't question that advice, and it's difficult for them to do so. Also, the system is set up so that even the politician who knows it's a crock will still put in place the FATF standards because we need to get that tick so that we've got access to the financial system. So the system is set up against its reform. It's set up against recognizing that. Even in banks, I've talked to chief executives of uh, and, and chairs of major banks who know that it's a crock, but they can't say anything because they're between a rock and a hard place too. One, they're advised by senior compliance people who genuinely believe this stuff. And so it's difficult for them to 
to push back and do something different, particularly when they've got a regulator that has also drank the Kool-Aid and is going to penalise them for any anything there. So where I've moved my so, so the chance of the chance of a top-down change at that level is is fairly remote. Remote and FATF a few months ago basically said we just need to keep doing what we're doing. So they're locking in a fourth decade of failure. So my research some time ago started to pivot towards looking at is there a way where a country an individual country with a degree a degree of leadership rather than the, the supine followership that we've had to date for the past um, uh, 30 odd years um, uh, could actually um, very quietly do it itself and achieve a, a massive impact on serious proper motivated crime but in a risk-free way i.e not jeopardizing the fat tick, still getting the fat tick, but have a massive impact now if that happens then that country could then be a catalyst for others to follow um, and that would be fantastic. And other countries would follow because it works and because it's, uh, um, because it's much less costly and much less um, burdensome on their business, etc. And, and other countries would follow simply because it works, not because they have to. Also, I've been looking at ways that individual banks can act as a catalyst for change. And um, that's looking possible as well. And, and But this needs to be done in a way where banks can quietly do it, have a massive impact, but without affecting the regulatory um, uh, arrangement at all, and strip out all of their um, um, uh, regulatory risk, uh, including all those needles that the current system leave in the banks. So stripping out all those criminal needles, so they got, they got uh, slashed their regulatory risk to almost zero. But it needs to be done in a way that... Um, the regulators are, are happy with. So, so in fact, that's where I've been working on in a way where, in fact, you can make the regulators look like heroes, strip out your um, regulatory risk dramatically, cut down your costs enormously, and as a few more banks start to do that, because it works, and the regulators look good because all of a sudden, oh, we're having a demonstrable impact on crime and in the current system there's no no one's ever demonstrating it no one's ever robustly testing it but it can be done in a way where it can be robustly tested that individual bank can quietly do it another bank can quietly do it that regulator looks good then all of a sudden that can act as a as a catalyst um, around the world as well so i think the the way to change because there is there is zero um uh well, not to zero, almost zero discernible interest in changing at the top level in terms of FATF and, and, and countries having that leadership. But Ron, one part I'm, I'm not clear what you're saying there is that you're saying that banks would have to keep doing all the KYC, FATF, etc. stuff, but have their own thing on the side that's their own way of showing that they're stopping criminals. How, how exactly would they do that? That other thing. Oh, I can't give too much away, but think of it this way. So, so for example, um, so I, I, over the years I've looked at, say, compliance um, systems. Right, I have never seen a compliance system that has matched um, the three requirements that I have. Never until until recently. Um, and so, at the moment, compliance systems do. They, they, they allow um, banks and exchanges, et cetera, to comply with the regulations. The regulator says you need to do these things. And so they have all of these um, uh, rules and, and, and scenarios. They call them scenarios. They might have 20 or 30 scenarios. Bigger banks might have 100 scenarios um, uh, that they tweak to look for criminality. Now, they, they look down those, um, th those lines of criminality, but there's 98% of, of, of that they just can't see. And also it produces 98% of false positives. So it's an incredibly inefficient way of doing it because these systems are set up to comply. Um, I've had chief executives of compliance firms say, come and look at our system. It's the best thing. It's got AI. It's got all of this, et cetera. And I, I then tell them, I look at three things. Um, 
and then they run away screaming. Well, not quite screaming, but they certainly um, are no longer that interested in me looking at their system because they know that it doesn't achieve those things. Um, and so, you know, I ask, will it have a substantial demonstrable impact on serious crime? Will it have a substantial demonstrable impact on regulatory risk? And will it have a substantial demonstrable impact on compliance costs? Slashing all of those and in a robust way. And until recently, I never saw a single system that did that. And the, the first one I saw that did it, um, it was fascinating. It wasn't built as a compliance system. It was built to find crime. Um, and so it's not based on um, uh, those particular, the, 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 you know, ticking those boxes, etc. It's based on how do we actually strip out in, in terms of crime. But, so coming back to your question, does a firm need to do this and this? Well, the interesting thing about that, not necessarily. It, it still needs to do the, the tick box stuff in the meantime because it can't afford not to. So it has to, but if you tack on something that enables um, that that visibility to happen in a way that is robust in terms of the way I look at things as a from a scientist scientist point of view, is is it robust? Is it demonstrable? You can demonstrate this in a way that demonstrates to the regulator there's a there's a demonstrable impact on crime that's never been done before, in a way that demonstrates to the board that we've stripped out massive regulatory risk. If you can do that, right, that's when you then get to the stage where the regulator is saying, this is fantastic, this is an amazing thing, thank you very much. All of a sudden, you've got no regulatory risk, and you've got no risk anyway because your system has stripped it out. And so it's it's a sh you still have to tick those boxes for the meantime, but eventually you're moving towards something where your regulator is saying, this is great, let's do more of this. And when one regulator does that, then another one another country does it, another one another country does it, eventually... FADF will say, oh, yes, that's what we meant all along. And that's fine. It's not about ego. Um, when that happens and FADF actually says, oh, yeah, that's what we meant all along, and then, yes, here's a system that works, we'll slightly tweak um, the, the, the um, you know, what's happening because, you know, this country is doing a great job um, and everyone else needs to follow that approach. That's great. Don't have a problem with that. That's when we flip from... 0.05% impact on crime to have a marked impact on crime, whether it's you know in that particular metric, it might be 20 or 30% or whatever it happens to be, which is a hundreds of times um, a, a, a greater impact. And the modeling I've done demonstrates that the costs just fall away to not quite zero, but a, a tiny, tiny fraction of the um, of the benefits, which is what happens in most regulatory um, compliance systems, unlike AML. Which is why they don't measure it, because this is this is one where instead of being the cost being a tiny fraction of the benefits, the costs are by some measures twenty five thousand percent the benefits, um, which is you know unheard of in regulatory compliance, except in AML. Yeah, it's unfortunate that uh, there's very little concern for actual cost effectiveness, and uh, I think the other thing is because it's an ever shifting goalpost. There'll be some new directive and they'll say, oh, now it's AML 5D. Now you've got to check this and this. And they just continually implement some new thing. And then the compliance cost shoots into the sky. And so, again, it just keeps the current large players in banking, financial services, institutions uh, entrenched in their position versus new players, while at the same time not really doing much against actual genuine bona fide crime. That's been going on for nearly 30 years. It's, it's basically a silver bullet type approach. Um, and so, oh, the, and, and all the, all the firms are doing it and ev all the experts are saying it. Oh, if, we, so at the moment it's AI, for example, AI is going to fix everything. And it's, it's, um, uh, some of the stuff that's come out of the, um, 
uh, out of the recent data leak, it's, oh, we need to um, extend the, the laws more to lawyers and accountants, etc. That'll fix everything. Oh, we need more um, beneficial ownership um, uh, transparency. That'll fix everything. Um, but people don't step back a, a second and think, and I've done this analysis. I've looked at all of those um, silver bullet solutions over the past 30 odd years, um, and everyone was touted the same. We need to extend it to more countries. We need to extend it to more businesses. We need to extend it to more, you know, now, um, you know, to Bitcoin, etc. Um, but if you look at all of those, the combined impact of all, so none of them had a material impact on crime at all individually, let alone all combined. Um, yet no one's asking that question. Um, they just, it, it sounds like a good idea. So let's do another, um, another tranche of extending it further, extending it further into the art industry, into crypto, into etc. That's going to have this impact. And, and all we're doing is sweating the 0.05% uh, impact. Um, and, you know, it, it's fantastic for two global cartels. And that's it. Organized crime and organized compliance. <laughs> well, I think that's probably a good point to finish up here, Ron. Thank you for joining us. It's been a really great and informative discussion around the ineffectiveness of AML. For any listeners who want to follow your work online or find you, where's the best place for them to find you? Um, probably probably the blog, I guess, uh, effectiveaml.org, um, or drop me a line um, through LinkedIn, uh, Google me, and you'll find, you know, find me or find all sorts of abuse about me, I suspect. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't Googled myself for a while, so I don't know quite what will, what will come up. But uh, effectiveaml.org is, is, is probably the best start. Excellent. Well, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes for listeners. And uh, Ron, thank you again for joining me. Thank you. I hope you found that informational about the problems and challenges of AML ineffectiveness and how and why Bitcoiners should be looking to build a parallel system with open source software and hardware, as well as the eventual goal of defunding the FATF, which is probably the goal that I would have in mind because I think these things are not going to be reformed in a productive way. They simply have to just be abolished or made obsolete thanks to the creation of a better and new system. Anyway, get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 318, and I'll see you in the Citadels.